Hi, and welcome to The Five By, the top-rated board game podcast that you're listening to right this second. In this episode, Sarah tells us all about twisty little passages, Meeple Lady brings us to La Havre, the inland port, Christy goes to the castles of Burgundy, Ruel parties hard with telestrations upside drawn, and I stay home like a sensible person with the game. We're hoping you're staying safe, wearing a mask, and washing your hands. The thrill of the new hotness is ever-present in board gaming, but this week I'm looking back at a game that has stood the test of time. The Castles of Burgundy, designed by Stefan Feld and first published in 2011, is now nearing its 10th anniversary. The art of the original Ravensburger and Aaliyah edition is by Julien Delval and Harald Liska. There is also a newer edition that recently came out from the same publishers with new art by Antje Stefan and Klaus Stefan. This review mostly refers to the original. I was just getting into board gaming around the time that The Castles of Burgundy came out. It was one of the first games I owned because it was recommended for two players and I was building up my two-player collection at the time. The Castles of Burgundy was the first game on my shelf ever to elicit that whoa, these are some weird games, reaction from an unsuspecting friend, and that's how I knew that I had officially gone down a rabbit hole. In The Castles of Burgundy, you are an aristocrat developing your own princedom in medieval France. During the game, you will build castles and other buildings, populate your pastures with animals, mine silver, and trade goods along the river. Each player has their own player board with a particular layout of hexes, showing various color-coded terrain types and also die faces. There is also a main board with corresponding tiles on it. Throughout the game, you will be able to obtain those tiles and place them on your board with the goal of creating the best duchy and earning the most victory points. In order to obtain and place tiles, you roll dice, specifically two d6s per turn. On your turn, you can use each die to take an action. You can use a die to take a tile from the board, place a tile onto your board, sell goods, or buy worker tiles. Worker tiles function as a luck mitigation tool because they allow you to alter your die rolls. Goods tiles are typically acquired by adding ship tiles to your board. You can sell goods tiles for silver, which allows you to buy tiles beyond what your dice would normally provide. Getting goods tiles from shipping is just one example of the things you can trigger by adding tiles to your board. The brown building tiles will let you do additional actions such as placing an extra tile on your board, taking an extra tile of a particular type from the main board, taking money or workers, or selling goods. A castle tile will give you a bonus action of your choice as if you had an extra die of any value. So the strategy of the game involves not just which tiles you place, but what else those tiles might let you accomplish in a given phase. The Castles of Burgundy takes place over five phases. It is a true point salad with tons of different ways to score points. One way is to fill in all the hexes of a color in a particular region. If you do that, you'll earn different numbers of points according to which phase you're in, the sooner the better. The timing of mines also matters because they produce at the end of the phase. So you're not just trying to indiscriminately spam your board with tiles. Often you are trying to make calculated moves that will let you accomplish a particular thing by the end of the phase. The tiles on the main board scale really nicely according to player count. So you don't have to implement any artificial limits if you only have two players. You simply put out fewer tiles to create more competition. 
You do have to reseed the board with tiles every phase, so it does get a bit fiddly at times. The stated player count is 2 to 4, but I would only recommend 2 or 3. Most people I know try to avoid 4 players because of the excessive downtime involved. The Castles of Burgundy does have a bit of a multiplayer solitaire feel to it, which only contributes to the feeling of downtime during other people's turns. Some folks will kvetch about the component quality of the original edition. The boards and tiles are a little on the thin side, but I've never found it to be a problem. It's not going to match the quality of some of your other Euro games with similar depth, but if you are reasonably gentle with your games, then one copy will hold up for many plays, realistically as many as it's ever going to get. A few of the terrain colors may appear similar in some lighting. There's a yellow, a light green, and a dark green. All of the tiles have art on them that helps identify which kind of tile they are. I've heard that the tiles are thicker and the colors are a little more saturated in the new edition. The Castles of Burgundy is a great classic worth knowing and returning to. It has inspired a card game and a dice game. It feels satisfying to fill out your board even if you're losing, and even though it has dice, the workers make you more flexible and give you more options to think about. There are many expansions available, including different player boards to keep the game fresh, and those boards will suggest new strategies depending on the layout of the hexes. You can find me on Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening and stay well. In today's world of increased hands washing, mask wearing, and physical distancing, it's hard to imagine playing a party game that requires at least four players. Thankfully, we live in the age of webcams and high-speed internet that allows us to play games that offer much-needed silliness. Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at Telestration's Upside Drawn, a party game designed by Kane Klenko and published in 2020 by The Op, who sent me a review copy. Telestration's Upside Drawn is based on the original Telestrations, a game over 10 years old that remains a big hit at game nights. In the original game, each player had a spiral-bound notebook of erasable pages and a card of six words or phrases. A die was rolled, and everyone had to secretly draw what was indicated on their card. Notebooks were passed around, guesses were made, and then new drawings made based on those guesses. The end of every round was hilarious as players revealed their original answers and the progression of answers and drawings. Like a modern version of the classic game Telephone, Telestrations is easy to learn and always a source of hilarious moments. Could a sequel to this modern classic come close to rivaling the original's low rules overhead and high volume of laughs? In a word, yes. Telestrations Upside Drawn takes the original's premise and puts a new spin on it, making it more difficult and competitive while maintaining the pure joy of drawing as a game. Designed by Kane Klenko of Dead Men Tell No Tales, Flip Ships, and Fuse fame, Telestrations Upside Drawn is a fantastic party game that deserves to be a part of any game night. Once again, cards are used to establish the secret word, but this time players are divided up into two to three teams. All teams must have one guide and one artist, and the other team members are guessers, including the artist. Each card has six different words in the categories person, place, thing, action, phrase, or wild. A die is rolled to indicate the word to each team's guide. Like the original game, there are erasable pens and boards, but here's the big twist. The guide is the only one who knows the word, and they'll guide the board while the artist holds the erasable pen. So, the artist holds the pen straight down onto the board, and the guide moves the board to draw the secret word. The only communication allowed are two words that the guide can say to the artist, up and down, which indicate when the guide wants the artist to put the pen down onto the board to draw, 
or take the pen up off the board. When I first read the rules, this seemed downright impossible, but as I quickly found out, it's not as hard as it sounds and it's much more fun than I expected. One smart addition to the game boards are the icons on both sides of the board. On the left are icons that the guide can have the artist write on that will help players refine their guesses. For example, if guessers are close to the right answer, there's a hot icon, or the guide can have the artist draw something easier that sounds like the secret word, and then point to the sounds like icon. On the right side of the board are the category icons of the words, so guides can make their artists write on the categories to give context to the word they're drawing. While Telestrations used Telephone as its inspiration, Telestrations Upside Drawn has more in common with a charades-type drawing game. The official rules state that you're racing against the other teams to guess your word first, and you'll score points based on the difficulty of the word. First team to 20 points wins. But, like the original Telestrations, it's all about the process and not the end results. So how can you enjoy Telestrations Upside Drawn in today's world of online game nights? In the case of me and my family, we live-streamed a game on Twitch, with two of us being the guide and the artist, while the third joined our audience as the guessers. This worked surprisingly well, and our game lasted longer than the 20-minute gameplay time on the box, due to how much we were enjoying it. We didn't keep track of our scores, since we weren't pitted against any other teams. It was basically a big, fun, cooperative game. And this didn't stop us from having some of those huge laughs we experienced with the original game. As the guide, I thought the word Viking would be easy to draw. Of course, as I tried to move the board with the artist, my Viking ended up looking more like a demon, and I had to add a shield before the team figured it out. Most memorable from our livestream though was the saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I quickly guided the artist to circle the phrase icon, then proceeded to draw the worst hand ever seen. That alone led to laughter, then we barely got to drawing a bird when someone guessed correctly. We shouted with glee and gave virtual high fives. Lucky guess? Sure, but still a wonderful moment. One that we as gamers will talk about and laugh about years from now. Thanks to the op for the copy of Telestrations Upside Drawn. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter and Twitch at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about the game. So I'm late to the party on a lot of titles because I fundamentally reject the cult of the new. It's a capitalist con. Now, I know this is a dull axe that I've been grinding for years on this show, so if you don't like it, just skip ahead five minutes. Still here? Great. So, back in 2015, this small box Stefan Bindorf title took over the tabletop world, despite having the worst name of anything released possibly ever. I hate the name viciously. It's confusing, it's hard to Google, it's difficult to talk about. I don't want to dwell on this, but it's really stupid, and it still makes me mad five years later. The full German title is even more absurd. The game... Spiel so long du kannst, or play as long as you can. And yes, there is an ellipsis in the title. One of the English versions is called The Game. Are you ready to play the game? Question mark. And one of the French versions translates as The Game. The Game is not your friend. Just absolutely the stupidest possible titling for a game. So if you're looking for it on BGG, it's difficult to look up since there are thousands of titles with those two words in them. It is BGG entry number 173090, or you can search The Game Extreme, and that later title will link back to it. To keep it less confusing, I'll say The Game when I'm referring to the actual game that you're playing here, and The Game when I mean the literal title of this game. So what is it? It is a deck of 100 numerically sequential cards 1 through 100. 
You've each got a hand of them, and you're trying to get rid of all of them as a group. Two stacks on the table play up, and two play down. If you have a card 10 away from the card that's face up, you can play it too. It's a co-op game, but there's a new version that two can play against each other, and a couple of other variations as well, but you can look those up yourself. It plays to five, but I've only played it at two. It also has some solo rules if you just want a hard puzzle to try your patience against. I didn't like the solo game very much, but I also really don't like puzzles either. Megan and I have been playing the game a lot since lockdown began. It's challenging, but not difficult to play. That is, it's easy to remember what you're supposed to do, and the emotional load of setting it up and playing it is super light. We've been playing a lot of games since we're home together all the time now, but I just really haven't had any energy to get out any of the big box euros. I think it's possible that the oppressive existential dread of living life every day in a pandemic has sapped a lot of the energy that that kind of thing really requires of me. And because of all that, the game has been great for the last few months. We're playing it with a copy of The Mind that I got in trade because they have the same number of cards. Uh, I printed off two cards with plus symbols and two cards with minus symbols to use on the table. They're available on BGG. You could also just use no cards. You could also play with a six nymph deck. It's not exactly the same number of cards, but it doesn't really matter. You could also take two cheap decks of playing cards and write on them, or take my suggestion from last episode and buy yourself some blank playing cards. You could, of course, also just buy a copy of The Game. It's cheap, and I think a very solid value for the repeat plays you'll get out of it. The original version put out by NSV, one of my favorite publishers, is kind of weirdly gruesome, which I normally would love but found a little distracting. The readily available retail version in the U.S. is the newer Pandasaurus edition with the mildly psychedelic art from Quanchi Moria. The new pretty version is between $10 and $13 in the U.S., available from most online retailers and probably from your local game store if you're the kind of person that leaves your house these days. It was a Target Stores exclusive for a while a couple of years ago, but it's available pretty widely now. If you're searching on Amazon, you have to type the game card game to pull it up. I know, it's just ridiculous. So if you do buy a retail copy of the game, you can also play the mind with it if you make yourself some throwing star and extra life cards or print them off or whatever. As a side note to all this, anyone who attempts to engage me on whether or not the mind is in fact a game or not is going to get blocked, canceled, and possibly nuked from orbit. I don't want to talk about it. We typically don't like communication-limited games. I've found them contrived or just frustrating, but Stefan Bendorf is a very good designer. He did Quicks and 21, so the dude knows what's up. And this one doesn't feel hokey. Even if you cheated and had full discussions about the cards in your hands, the game would still be pretty difficult. Your score is how many cards you have left when you can't play anymore. And after around two dozen plays, we feel pretty good if we get down into the single digits. We've beaten it a couple of times, that is, gotten rid of all of our cards, but it's pretty damn tough. There's a great sense of satisfaction that comes from having done well at this, maybe more than anything else I've played in a very long time. I'm not sorry that it took me five years to play the game. It just proves that there's zero urgency to play new titles as soon as they're available. It didn't cost me anything not to have played it, and now I can enjoy it. As a final side note, this got robbed for Spiel de Jar that year by Colt Express, every copy of which has now fallen apart, but it doesn't matter because no one cares about it or ever plays it or ever talks about it anyway. So who should play the game? People who like small group co-ops, people who like tight little card games, people who like rules like puzzles, and people who prefer to play games without talking to each other. I give the game 7 out of 7 letters in the all-time dumbest title for one of the best co-op card games. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Discount Compost, as well as on BoardGameGeek as Breakfast Core. Wash your hands and wear a mask. You are in a maze of twisty little passages, all alike. Does that phrase mean anything to you? 
To me, it means being 12 years old, sitting on the carpet at my best friend's house, playing adventure on her dad's computer. It was the first computer game I ever played, and the first PC I ever saw. After that experience, text adventures were my first love in computer games. I spent countless hours playing everything I could get my hands on. I even tried my hand at designing a text adventure. It was terrible, and I never finished, but it was my first attempt at coding, which eventually became my career. And it all started in 1981 on that ugly beige carpet in front of that now antique, then impossibly modern computer. In a way, that phrase, a maze of twisty little passages, was my future. That's a lot for a new game to live up to, and maybe not a fair set of expectations to bring to the table. But when I saw there was a game on Kickstarter called Twisty Little Passages, and it was a solo puzzle adventure campaign game in book form, well, okay, I'm not made of stone. Twisty Little Passages was published in 2020 by Mike Reimer's company, Caravel Games. There's no designer or artist credited, but I assume Reimer is mostly or entirely responsible for the work. Twisty Little Passages is not a border card game, but a book containing a series of mazes. There are enemies scattered throughout each maze, locked doors, and items like armor, weapons, keys, and health potions to help you get through it. The page facing each maze shows stat charts for you and for enemies. The goal of Twisty Little Passages is to find the most efficient path through each maze. You lose hit points each time you encounter an enemy, and you have to find the route that lets you get through without ever dropping down to zero. As you might expect, the puzzles start out easy and get more difficult as you progress through the book. The items also get more complex. Most just increase your attack or defense, but there are single-use items that do something specific, and limited duration items that wear out after a few uses. It's fun to encounter one of these items and figure out when to pick it up and how best to use it. I do wish that whether you took an item or not affected your stats at the start of the next maze, but I can see how that kind of branching would have made the design way too complicated for the book format. It takes some trial and error to get through each maze in twisty little passages, trying to figure out the best path to each item and in what order to take them. Do you use that key early to unlock an easy path to a potion? Or do you brute force your way through several enemies and save the key for later? Mazes almost always end with a boss who takes a lot of hit points to defeat, so you have to plan carefully. I think this is Caravelle's first tabletop game. They do a series of puzzle computer games called Drod, aka Deadly Rooms of Death. Although the title references text adventures, Twisty Little Passages feels a bit like a puzzle platformer. Moving through a series of self-contained levels, which you repeat over and over until you find the right sequence of actions to solve it and move on to the next one. The book format makes it easy to repeat a maze. It's spiral-bound to lay flat, with nice thick laminated pages. All you need is a dry erase marker. The book also allows you to try a puzzle a couple of times, then set it down and come back later, with no setting up and putting away components to worry about. I often take breaks while working on a maze. It's a classic problem-solving technique that works well with these puzzles. There are hints and solutions for each maze in the back of the book. But you don't want to use the hints, do you? Nah, you don't. You might be wondering, is this a game? I've been asking myself that as I play through. Which is strange, because I don't generally find that an interesting question. In my experience, deciding a game really isn't a game often represents gatekeeping that I don't want to be part of. But in any case, Twisty Little Passages is definitely a game. It's a form of play, with rules, there's a way to win and a way to lose. Heck, I lose every puzzle several times before I figure it out. If any solo game is a game, then Twisty Little Passages is. 
But if you're having trouble with the game being a book rather than a board or cards, you could take a meeple from your Carcassonne set and use it to mark your progress through the maze. The theme is pretty standard dungeon crawling. You're an adventurer, the mazes are dungeons, forests, and the like. You fight kobolds, wizards, and so forth. The maps are clear and easy to read, and I really love that the player character is a woman of color and not the only woman or the only person of color in the game. It's nice to see twisty little passages avoid the whitewashing that's so common in this theme. And she's even wearing sensible clothes for an adventurer. My only criticism of the art is the potions are dark blue with a number printed in black. I find this number really hard to see and often use the flashlight in my phone to read it. If they do a reprint of Twisty Little Passages, I hope they'll fix that problem. You can buy Twisty Little Passages from the publisher, caravelgames.com. They offer the book or a PDF, which would work great if you don't have dry erase markers. Just print each maze off and use a pencil. You could print a fresh copy for each attempt. So does Twisty Little Passages fulfill the promise of my childhood dreams? Well, that's a bit much to ask of a puzzle game, but it is great solo fun. It's an after-work game for me, an engaging, sometimes brain-burning way to relax and occupy an hour or so each afternoon. And that's Twisty Little Passages. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you're trapped in a dungeon with a kobold. Then I really want to hear from you. I still haven't resumed playing board games in person. So that leaves gaming online with friends and playing two-player games at home. Some of my favorite shorter 2P games are the small box versions of Uwe Rosenberg's classic big box games. Recently, I came into possession of Le Havre, the inland port, completing the trifecta as now I also own Agricola, All Creatures Big and Small, and Caverna, Cave vs. Cave. You can listen to Mike's review of All Creatures Big and Small in episode 83, and Cave vs. Cave reviews from myself in episode 66 and Ruth in episode 17. Thanks to my friend and Fiby colleague Mason, I was able to secure a copy of this game and give it a go. Lahav the Inland Port came out in 2012 from Lookout Games, with artwork by Clemens Franz, who frequently works with Uwe Rosenberg so much that all of his games have, like, kind of the same aesthetic. At first glance, the game looks fiddly as heck. The game comes with two warehouse boards that mark your resources, and two player boards that have giant spinners on it. The game also comes with cardboard coins, a slew of building tiles, and goods counters, both in cardboard and wooden cube form. You can use either one you prefer. Gameplay lasts for 12 rounds, with each round having multiple turns as dictated on the spinner boards. It's an odd number of turns each round, so the first player of each round has the extra turn. But what's mildly irritating about this game is that there's no mechanism of keeping track of whose turn it is, or how many turns you've taken. We ended up busting out a D10 from our gaming shelf to keep count. It's easy to keep track when it's three turns this round, but when you get into nine turns per round, it starts easily falling into the territory of, wait, which turn is this? But honestly, that's my only gripe I have with this game, which you can see is easily remedied. The game is fun, tense, and very interactive. It's a great, compact, and worthy version of the classic Le Havre, which I absolutely love and talked about in episode 57. Each sector of the circle has a number assigned to it as indicated by the center of the spinner. This comes into play for your buildings. After each round, the spinner moves to the next tick mark on your player board, changing the value of the sector. At the start of each round, new buildings come into play, and on your turn you can either build a building by paying its cost, either with resources or food, or you can use a building you've already built. 
When you build a building, you place it to the right side of where your spinner is sitting on your board. When you use a building on your board, or use an opponent's building by paying them a franc, you place the building back to the zero sector and activate that action however many times based on the building's original position. For example, if the hardware store was in the three sector and you decide to use it, you can move your wood or clay three spaces to the right on your warehouse board. Most buildings are resource conversion types, with a handful that are for endgame scoring. The warehouse board tracks your resources. It has a bunch of small squares on it that fit your resource cubes. You can move your resources in various directions based on the building you're using, but when you move it diagonally, you gain more resources than moving that resource cube to the right. But this can also be a drawback for you, as when you move cubes down when you spend the resources, you may not be able to make change based on the cube's location. It's a neat added puzzle to the resources of the game. The added mechanism of the spinner is reminiscent of Uwe Rosenberg's other game, Glass Road, and it's also pretty creative. Instead of the spinners counting your resources like in Glass Road, here in the inland port, it adds a countdown mechanism to using your buildings. If a building isn't used by the time the spinner makes a rotation back to it, you'll be forced to sell the building back to the market for half its value. After 12 rounds, and lots of turns in between, the player with the most francs and victory points from their buildings wins the game. And unlike the original Lahav, you won't have a hard time seeing your opponent's buildings, since there's only two of you playing in the game. This alone is completely worth getting this game if you love the original Lahav. Have you ever played 5P Lahav? Just don't, unless you have a lot of patience. And that's Lahav, the inland port. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. This has been the 5 by your five-stop shop for rapid-fire board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at 5 bygamescom If you like what we do here on the 5 by and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 5 by Games. Thanks for listening and happy gaming. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Gateway Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.